When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. haven't given us a review yet a why okay you've answered that question and b go and do it now like you can pause us that's that's okay um we won't be offended anyway leave us a review leave us a nice one um if you and come and listen live like tony is uh, in the room just now uh, we're going to be talking about ash barty today queen barty in george's notes for me uh we've also got another french open favorite with a win this week rafa nadal uh, beating stefanos Tsitsipas in in one of the games of the year i think most people would agree. Uh, Matteo Berrettini picked up a title uh, in Belgrade as well. Barty, as I mentioned, winning in Stuttgart. And also, we will very briefly mention Serana Castella, who picked up her first title in 13 years uh, in Istanbul. The outspoken Serana Castella, as you have to call her. Uh, we'll also chat a bit about Andrea Gaudenzi, who's a very popular figure in Canadian tennis, I'm told. Uh, Andy Murray's been talking this week as well. Uh, and we'll also chat about our worst possible drinking night out dream doubles pair, uh, which I'm sure will uh, feature some some interesting slights and nothing that I'll have to go through with our lawyer in the edit. But let's start with the world number one, the woman who I always call the most underrated world number one in tennis. Now, you could say that because she spent the best part of a year at home in Australia, choosing not to really take part in the improvised tour during the pandemic, that maybe it's justifiable calling her that. But since she has come back to professional tennis, she's been in sparkling form. Uh, she obviously went out in the quarterfinals of the Australian Open, but she went and won a title in Miami. Um, she's now won a title in Stuttgart, and with a very strong run, by the way. She beat Pliskova, Svitolina, Arena Sabalenka in the final. George, she certainly looks like the form player on clay in the women's game at the moment. Would that be fair? Yeah, I mean, look, we're early into the clay season, so it's probably a bit too soon to say this person's in great form and this person's not. But Barty's the form player in the tour. She's got, um, I think she's top of the race. Um, you know, I, I was definitely one of those people who wasn't that convinced about her as world number one. Like, I thought she did kind of had a good a purple patch and then really I thought Osaka was the true number one in my mind. Um, but she's really... Starting to change my opinion quite strongly. Um, I suppose Osaka's a little bit more absent from the main tour, kind of taking a bit, you know, superstar-esque approach to it, where she's not going to 
turn up week in, week out and probably still boss it at the majors. But it'll be interesting to see how she does on clay because Barty, which I think we've said a, a thousand times, is a proper all-court player, a natural and unnatural surfaces player. So, yeah. She's... <laughs> Honestly. It's, who had four minutes 20 for George to get his nonsense natural surfaces <laughs> in first? Uh, we'll move on from that as quickly as we possibly can. Calvin Ash Barty, she, she, I think she lost a set, the first set, in fact, in each of her matches against Piscova, Svitolina, Sabalenka. But she does have this incredible record now um, of 10 straight wins against top 10 players. Uh, I think it does include Savalenka and Svitolina twice. Um, and I think there's one or two other players in there who might not rate necessarily as top 10 players. But it's a good record. She's a good match player, isn't she? Yeah, definitely. She's so relaxed as well. And I think she's this is where it comes in handy for her that she's played other sports to a very high level, that she mm. knows how to handle these situations. And I think she's very adaptable in her game and that kind of thing. She's kind of like that record, what you've just said. Uh, she's kind of the opposite of Rafael Nadal this year, isn't she? <laughs> uh, in terms of wins yeah. against top 10 opponents. Um, yeah, that, that statistic on Nadal, by the way, just that Calvin's referring to, and we'll come on to Rafa, but I think he has the seventh best record since the beginning of 2020 against fellow top 10 players. Um, behind almost everyone, um, but we will come back to that. But yeah, you mentioned that she's played other sports. She, of course, played professional cricket uh, for a couple of years. She's played in the Big Bash in Australia, which anyone who's watched it knows that the women's games there are played in front of crowds of 30,000, 40,000 upwards. So pressure doesn't seem to be a problem, except that she doesn't have a great record in a, you know at the Australian Open, does she? It's not somewhere she's necessarily performed to her best. Is that you know, I think, oh, she got to the semi-finals in 2020, but that's probably about it. Is that just a coincidence then, do you think? Yeah, I, I think so, yeah. But also, although she's got a good record against top 10 opponents there, I'm not sure what it's like against when we're talking about these real elite level ones that, that we sort of say, like Osaka, I guess Andrescu, um, and that type of level. Murga Roots of this year has been excellent. So she's kind of beaten the second tier of the top tenors, if that makes I sense. I would agree with that. Uh, you, you know, this, I'll give you this run of top 10 players. Uh, as I mentioned, Sabalenka, Svitolina, Pliskova. But then Svitolina again, Sabalenka again, Petra Kvitova's in there, Karolina Pliskova when she was world number two, to be fair. But yeah, it is a, it's a list of players who, you know, they're not top four, for example, barring... Yeah, now, how's Pliskova still, like, in the top 10? Like, she's just been hovering around there for years and, like, she never seems to win anything. I don't get it. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm unconvinced that she's like genuinely a top seven or eight player. <laughs> well, so I guess she's got a big enough game to like do, you know, get her way through to some points most weeks. But doesn't I mean I've always considered her. Well, I don't like the word bottler, as you well know, but it's in that. George. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, it's probably strong to call her a, a bottler, but in terms of slam she's never taken her best form to slams um she does win quite a lot of titles she's been pretty <clears throat> out of form for a while now though um i would say not really played her best stuff um i was going to say since she got married actually which seems like an odd event sometimes that really sparked players into great form but um, i mean she's it, working it with Saka me... now which could explain the big downturn in form yeah, that's probably mm. why she's turned rubbish, actually. <laughs> uh, incidentally, you know, we, we sort of joke about Carolina Pliskova and her, her poor form. Would anyone like to take a stab at her career prize money? Carolina Pliskova? 
Yeah. It won't be 20 bad. Million dollars. Yeah. Twenty I mean, she's million been, dollars. She's been world him. number one. I mean, we we shouldn't, you know, necessarily say, you know, this person's completely hopeless or anything. She's obviously been a very consistent top level tour the, player for a best, while. What's the best she's done at Slam? Final. Uh, one she lost US final. Open final to Kerber in 2016. Was that, yeah. was that before she went world number one? Yes. She was, so, one she was world number one in. She was world number one after losing in the second round of Wimbledon, if memory serves. Um, right. She there were about six of them going for it, I think. And this is yeah, in 2017. That, yeah. Oh, was that? And then she and she went out second round, but because other players had points to defend from the year before and went out as well, she went to world number. I think anyway, or maybe Muguruza. Anyway, around that time. I'm wondering what's okay. the best she's done I'll in a slam since she since she went world number one. Best slam result since. Since she went world number one, that's interesting. Okay. Uh, I mean, she's so not been past semi-finals. Okay. Semis, so I don't think. She, she's had three quarterfinals and one semi-final. That yeah. that's since she went world number one. But you know, and then before that, about the same. So I, I don't know if there's there's a link there. But the the thing the thing I'd say about her is she actually arrives quite often at slams in really hot form and i've i've <laughs> actually embarrassingly tipped her to win a few where she's then just lost second round um yeah. and kind of given up and kvitova can be similar i'm not saying it's a czech thing i'm sure it's not but you know they, <laughs> wow they are yeah. players who do seem to just you know get really really hot it's happened on the clay and um i think she's won eastbourne before as well Pliskova, um mm. where you're suddenly thinking she's in really good shape and then it just doesn't quite happen for her at slams and she's the sort of player I think strikes me anyway that she plays her way in a little bit um, and if you catch her in the early rounds before she's kind of 100% you, you can kind of take her out if that makes sense I think Vavrinka's in that sort of mould as well where you know he's a the longer they build into a tournament the more and more dangerous they get whereas you know it's pretty unlikely you ever think guys like Rafa Novak Roger Andy are going to slip up that early. I mean, well, Andy mm. these days, yeah. But you, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. I don't know how we ended up talking about Carolina Pliskova, because we were talking about Ash Barty, but it's kind of a, <laughs> it's one of those things, isn't it, where it's like she's in such good form, you know. she. I mean, she dropped the opening set in three consecutive matches, which suggests that she's not infallible by any stretch of the imagination. I know she was playing good players, but... I, I, to be fair, I didn't watch any of Stuttgart this week because I was mostly distracted by the two men's tournaments. But is she a problem solver, George? Is that is that the kind of narrative we're trying to paint here? I think definitely, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I saw some uh, bad social media content that got has been ripped apart a little bit. So I wouldn't call her the only problem solver on the women's tour. But she's, she's definitely up there in terms of best best variety along with guys like Andrescu, I'd say. Um, but that said, she's got quite a strong general game plan as well. You know, she serves pretty well. She can come in and volley. She can do different things in difficult moments. That's what I'd say is best about her. You know, I always think about guys like Goffan sometimes. You you know exactly what they're going to do every single point. Um, yeah. But Barty is capable of coming in and serving a volley. She's very handy at the net. She's got a good backhand slice, which actually isn't really something she's varying up generally. She does just like that shot. Um, right. But she's, she sticks to what she knows, but can mix it up in the big moments as well. Whereas I think Andrescu 
as a comparison is someone who's maybe mixing it up a lot more in point to point. Um, but Barty can mix it up maybe better on the biggest moment. That might be the way I would compare their variety, if that makes sense. Incidentally, you mentioned Bianca Andreescu, and we should just have a, a little shout out to her and a get well soon because she's pulled out of Madrid because she's tested positive for COVID-19, which you have to feel like she's just got back fit after you know, the best part of a year and a half out. She's back playing well. And then obviously she, she's now basically out for at least two weeks. And you wouldn't fancy her to, to come out of that and, and like the French Open very much. So um, really unfortunate timing for her. Unfortunate timing for George, who picked her to win the I was going to say, is she my pick yeah. for that? Yeah. I, I think, to be honest, I would be looking to transfer to Barty at the minute. Well, I'm not going to do that option, I'm afraid. That's not I know we're not allowed to, but, but, for the, but for the uh, tennis podcast, uh, love well, tennis you podcast will get predictions, yeah. We'll get so, she, Barty is, my, is who I'm on at the minute, I think. Wow. Now, big, big George Belshaw picking the most recent clay court champion on the women's court <laughs> to win the next clay court tournament. You, you'd you love my big shouts. But, but don't worry, I'll give you about 10 different options who could also win to cover all bases. Okay, very good. I look forward to it. Um, no other maybe um, particularly significant results in Stuttgart, but a significant result in Barcelona, even if it is just Rafa Nadal winning his 12th title there. Uh, he beat Stefanos Tsitsipas in three sets. Oh, well, we've briefly lost Calvin. No, that's all right. I'm, we'll st- I'm still here. I'm still here. Oh, good. Oh, good. My... Thank goodness. Yeah. I, I was terrified that you might have gone. I promise. Um, <laughs> where was I? Uh, Rafa Nadal beating Stefanos Tsitsipas in three hours and 38 minutes. His longest ever best of three final. Longer than a number of his French Open finals, by the way. So to say that Steph pushed him hard is a bit of an understatement, to be fair. Um, it's also significant, George, I thought, because they played in the final in Barcelona three years ago and Tsitsipas won three games. So as much as I do want to talk about Rafa, I kind of want to start with Tsitsipas because this is a pretty good yardstick. He's been playing some, some really good tennis on all surfaces, including the natural surfaces. Uh, this year, but you know he is in excellent clay court form. He obviously won the title in Monte Carlo and pretty much smashed everyone in sight, and then beat some decent players, albeit mostly youngsters, um, in in Barcelona to reach the final. So you must have been impressed with what he did. Yeah, I mean, I'm, he's another one who just is continually impressing me. I mean, I think we've all tipped this pass for a while to be one of these next guys who's really, really knocking on the door at the very top of the game. Um, I was a little bit, I don't know if I would say worried, but a a little bit concerned he wasn't winning enough big, big matches since that Mm. big breakthrough against Federer. Um, Obviously had that big one over Rafa at the Australian Open, but then went out to Medvedev in straights. Um, You know, I I think for him, it's a case of backing up big win after big win. I think he puts so much into the big wins that sometimes he finds it really hard to follow up straight after. Mm. Um, that said, this year, you can't really complain. I don't think he's failed to reach the quarterfinals of an event this year. Um, you know, getting himself into good positions to win tournaments looks very focused, determined. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I'm quite interested to know where everyone's at in terms of predicting the French Open at the minute because I mean Rafa's obviously going to be the guy we're all picking I imagine 
Um, mm. But team's a bit of an unknown at the minute. You know, we spoke about him a little bit last week where he's at mentally, where he's at physically. You know, he's probably the guy you're putting at two normally, as is Novak. But then Novak got so badly beaten by Rafa and he looks a little bit out of sorts to me at the minute. Um, doesn't look quite there mentally. But with him, you never know at a slam whether he's just going to turn it on. You'd, you'd say, you know, Medvedev, not playing well on clay. He's admitted he doesn't like it that much. So Sissipas is the most informed player coming in against Rafa, but I'm still not sure you'd have him higher than fourth favourite at the minute. Yeah, I think that's probably reasonable. I think Courtney is saying in the um, discussion on Locker Room that Rafa is favourite, but the least favourite he's ever been. I think on the um, odds makers, he's still 50-50 against the field. He's an even money favourite. Uh, so he's still rated pretty strongly in that sense. Well, but I would agree. I mean, this, look, even he knows his second serve is in trouble. I, I was going to say that actually the the least favourite he's been for me was actually the French Open last year when the conditions were changing so much. Oh, um, what, when he said he didn't like the new ball? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, in, but, you know, Novak at that point hadn't lost a match apart from getting disqualified mm. in the US Open. He just turned up, rocked Rome. Rafa had lost to Schwartzman in Rome, I think it was. And at, at that point, I was a little bit worried for him because he'd not really played that much, that many matches. Whereas, you know, I've seen him have bad clay court seasons at this point like this and then suddenly kind of grow through it, look quite strong in Rome and then roll in. So in a couple of weeks, this picture could have changed a bit. Um, whereas that tournament, I was like, mm, on the eve, I'm still, he's yeah. very, very shaky. So it might be a little early to make that shout, but he but he's playing badly. Um, yeah, as badly as we was a couple of years ago when he lost. I remember he lost a team in Barcelona. He'd lost to Fanini in Monte Carlo, I think. But still, by the time the French Open comes around, he then suddenly just turns it on. And best of five is so different for him. Um, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, I, I would say that we, we we chatted, you know, in the in the group about about the matchup in the Dal versus Tsitsipas, and obviously his height helps him against Nadal. Um, and also the fact, I think, that physically, uh, and proven by this match, really, as I say, three hours, 40 minutes is, is not best of five, but, you know, he's not far off quite a lot of Nadal's best of five matches, and certainly longer than some of them. I think Tsitsipas has proven he, physically he can go with Nadal. And, and to be fair, Nadal is not fully fit either. He doesn't look fully fit. He doesn't move and serve like a fully fit player. Uh, and I, I just don't, you know, and he's what, nearly 35. Yeah, you know, he, he has to eventually slow down. And this is starting to feel like it. Calvin, I don't know where you are on, on Rafa and, and his form. I mean, do, do, are you concerned if you were someone who had a piece of Rafa going into the French Open? Are you concerned if he doesn't show form? I'm a bit torn on it. To a degree, uh, I don't think he looked great so far, although... He wins matches. So he's definitely not in great form, but I'm also aware that he's quite big on, on peaking um, yeah. and planning his schedule. So he peaks at certain tournaments and that's always the French. So I would expect, certainly I'd expect him to be a lot better at the French than he currently is, but he'd have to be. Um, I've still got Djokovic as my favourite for the French though. It does seem like we're talking about he's lost in the second round this week rather than won the title, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's quite strange. I suppose it's just a, a kind of eye test, isn't it, this week? Watching him and seeing all the problems he's been having. It, it feels like better players could cause him real problems if he doesn't fix this 
this serve. And that's what we saw with Rublev, wasn't it? I mean, he really went after him taking on that serve. Sissipas obviously had a, a degree of success in terms of, you know, getting a match point and taking him pretty close. And historically, I don't think that's a great matchup for Sissipas, particularly on clay, um, him going into the backhand and all that. I, I think there's certainly encouragement for Novak. The problem is uh, Novak, I'm not convinced, is anywhere near what he, he needs to be doing either at the minute. I think he's in a very, very strange place. Again, he's someone who does just turn it on at the majors, but I'm I'm a little I'm arguably more worried for him than I am Rafa at the moment. Well, just just in case people missed out on uh, Novak Djokovic's activities over the last week, he was playing in Belgrade. He said how great it was to be sleeping in his own bed and going to the tournament from his from his home, which I imagine, especially after a you know a year and a half of being in hotel bubbles, was a huge advantage. But it didn't help him against the might of Aslan Karatsev. Uh, the lion roared once more in. You know, I said how good Nadal Tsitsipas was in one of the matches of the year. If you got the chance to watch Djokovic and Carrots there, that you can watch on replay even on, uh, on on Amazon Prime Video, it was a heck of a game. I mean, we all know what Adlan Carrots does now. He, he strikes the ball incredibly cleanly. What I found, you know, because I'm no technical expert, but what I found amazing about Carrots is how early he takes the ball. And, you know, Calvin, you've talked about the return of serve and how it's this push motion. You know, there's not really a backswing. It's more of a, a catch and throw. And he he hits that forehand with almost as much power with no backswing as he does with the full backswing. I mean, he was he was bashing Djokovic first serves back for return winners. It it was as how is this guy Calvin? How is this guy better on clay than he was on hardcore? <laughs> Um, I guess it, it's, he does have really short swings, yeah, but I guess it's um, similar to what we spoke about last week with the clay, that there's two ways of looking at it. You can go, you can, you can look at the best players on clay are the ones who don't miss any balls, so they grind their opponents down. Or sometimes when players lose, they go, oh, he just had, the, he had weapons to hit through the clay. And mm-hmm. he definitely comes in the latter where it gives him a little bit more time to set up and he can just he can just rifle off these huge shots, but but as well I think, and I keep saying this every week, that the clay courts are not what they used to be. They're most of the clay courts that they're playing on now are, are medium fast or medium, yes. I'd say medium to medium fast clay courts. It's just the movement. So and he'll have grown up on it. They play on clay courts in Russia a hell of a lot. So it's well, not, I think it's not it an was, alien surface to him. It was potentially your player Luke who who played against him, you know, at the yeah. lower levels quite a lot, who told us that clay was his best surface. Uh, and it's certainly something to look at. Um, Tony Eason in the discussion on Locker Room saying Novak looked so out of sorts and it was great to see him get frustrated against somebody he feels he should beat. Um, I, I said in something I wrote for the eye today that he looks like all the players who've been carrot served have looked, which is this kind of puzzlement and frustration of like, eventually this guy must start missing. He can't keep cleaning the lines with these balls. It can't possibly happen. I think Djokovic did also claim afterwards that he wasn't very well, uh, although I didn't see any evidence of that on court, George. Yeah, actually, I, th- I think that um, that quote might have been disputed, James. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. On oh, that. Really? I saw a lot. I, possibly. I'm not, I, it was in Serbian. I'm not sure it was translated correctly. Anyway, um, yeah, but well, your point about... didn't like the court because he was complaining about there being too yeah, much clay. Yeah, we it. certainly saw that. Yeah, that was a highlight. Um <laughs> There's too much clay on this clay court. Let's get it off. That uh, um, I effectively <laughs> built at the tournament that I effectively arranged. <laughs> yeah, I hate it. Um, I was going to say, on, on the point about him missing so much, I think the shot that stands out to me on that 
point is the the backhand particularly. It's such a flat shot. Like I keep yeah. expecting him to be more erratic on that side and missing a lot more, um, and it doesn't seem to be happening. And I, I wonder, I wonder if the clay almost. When I think about the final, the Australian Open match he lost to Djokovic, where actually that shot did break down a little bit more with mm. this kind of wall. Just maybe that little bit less pace on the clay gives a slightly larger margin for error for him not to miss that. Um, but yeah, seriously impressive. Off. Yeah, yeah mm. it was a seriously impressive performance. And, you know, there were points where Novak was drawn into some amazing stuff. I mean, the end of the second set particularly was probably the highest level I've seen this year. Um, yeah. You know, Novak pulling out. I know I was saying he's not in great form and seems a bit off at the minute. I actually think he's in kind of less great form mentally in many ways. Like a little bit disinterested, a little bit... Uninterested, George. Uninterested. Sorry, sorry. Excuse me. Um, He needs to kind of work his way in a little bit. Um, But, you know, at at those moments... At the end of that second set, he he was amazing. I mean, there was some astonishing defence where Carrots were just blasting through, and only Novak <laughs> could get to it and kind of keep it alive in the crazy ways he does. And then he paints lines himself afterwards. I mean, it, it was superb. Um, but yeah, it's, it's worth it's, pointing it's out by the way that, that Karatsev did save twenty three break points in that yeah. match. You know, Djokovic did did force enough opportunities. He then, for whatever reason, just couldn't take them. But I think actually you know, that would be an easy narrative to paint. What it actually suggests is it was a real ding-dong match and that there weren't a lot of cheat points on serve and that there was a lot, you know, a lot of baselining and it it was a heck of a match. Yeah, and I don't think, again, I don't think Novak's serving now how he was in the Australian Open, for example. Um, You know, it seemed quite Sampras-esque at times and he does have these tournaments where he just gets the serve perfectly right and I think... at this stage in his career, when the serve's not working quite as well as it can do, I think other players are starting to get a little bit more belief against him, particularly at these lower events. Um, well, yeah, I was going to say, if you're going to bring the belief factor in, Australia is his place. You know, walking out in Australia against Novak Djokovic is like walking out at Wimbledon against Federer or um, at Roland Garros against Rafa. It's that same kind of mental thing. And he and the courts in Australia were quick. I know court speed klaxon but they were quick and he did adapt to that well. And he did serve, you know, I remember Francis Tierfo sitting in a press conference afterwards and I said to him, oh, were you surprised? You know, it was the first time he had played him. I said, oh, were you surprised at the serve? And he was like, yeah, man. I was like, all right, Isner. Um, like he was genuinely <laughs> like, what on earth is this? And, you know, Tierfo is a guy who's playing reasonably well this year. Um, although he's kind of had a weird schedule where he's, he went and played clay in South America and then went back to Miami. But anyway, um, Calvin, again, I think you've discussed this in the group over the week about Djokovic and form. Like Nadal, do you think he peaks at the right time? Um, yeah, I'd say so. He's he's be- well. He's even said that himself, hasn't he? That he's not too fussed about anything other than the slams now. Um, although I think once he's on court, he actually wants to win all the time. But um, I think there's something in the slams that gives him that extra two or three percent for sure. And as um, Nadal said last week, he's obsessed with records. So that's his main record to go for, isn't it? Well, yeah. Where did he say that, George? Where, where, do we know where Nadal made that quote, George? I read, yeah, it, I read it on um, Tennis World USA. So I don't know. <laughs> their, their quote. I don't know who came up with the originals. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, actually, earlier, you've just reminded me saying that, that um, I, I was a little bit worried for Nadal that the curse of George Belshaw had continued with Rafa. 
in the early stages of my journalism career, I kept interviewing UFC stars because they made me briefly UFC correspondent. And uh, <laughs> everyone I interviewed, they got absolutely battered <laughs> the weekend. Uh, it was about That's seven exactly. fighters in a row. Um, so I haven't been tracking that curse through my career. But That's I good. thought it'd come back with Rafa, who then obviously lost in Monte Carlo to Rublev and looked like he was about to have his worst ever loss, uh, second worst ever loss on clay a week later <laughs> against Ivashka. So I was glad he turned it around and the curse was lifted. So well done, Rafa. Uh, before we get too carried away in, in Carrot's uh, wonderment, I mean, we should point out that he lost the final to Matteo Berrettini and kind of showed the other side of it, which is that he can't, you know, he lost the first set 6-1 then won the second set, played really well, went to a tie-break for the championship and lost seven love in the, the tie-break. You know, he, he, this can't happen. And Berrettini is a top-ten player and is capable enough of, of putting someone away who's, who's not going well. So, you know, he's not invincible. But I did think he'd lost weight, actually, by the way. I don't know whether it was just because he's wearing black this week, uh, which is very slimming, famously. Um, never saw Pavarotti in pastels, did you? Anyway... I just think he looks like he's lost a bit of timber, which would be interesting. But uh, yeah, good luck to him. Um, he's someone who, you know, mum, my mum actually, uh, who has been relishing me living at home with an Amazon Fire Stick over the last couple of months. Uh, she said to me, oh, how does he just get good at 27? And I kind of said, well, he's had two big injuries, I think, in his career at least. And actually, if you turn pro at 18, 19, and maybe you're a late physical developer, so you're only big at... 19 or 20, it only takes two big injuries to disrupt, disrupt six or seven years of development. And, and you know, that's, that's kind of what has happened to him. This is his first time where he's had 18 months to two years of training the whole time. And he's also moved around a lot of places, and I can see all that. So I think it's important to remember that sometimes you just need a bit of a, a run in training. Well, now that um, Dave Samuel, who's a very, very good British coach, uh, coaches Liam Brody. He was uh, saying to us about a year ago, and he also coaches Luke um, when sort of does some work with Luke as well, as well as I do. Uh, and he was saying that he has this belief that players have two to three windows in their career where they can move up in the rankings. Mm. And that's when it tends to happen. You move up and then you stagnate a bit and then you or maybe drop and then you move up again. So, uh, but once you've had your two off, once you've had your three, then you don't get many players who have a fourth drive. And I think that that's the thing with Karatsev is, although he's that sort of age, he hasn't. He still probably only had one real drive when he went up. He's not. He's still had one of his in inverted commas drives left over, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. And and you know, development does happen at different stages. But that that's interesting to think of it like that. Also, with the way the ranking system works, we've talked about this before. You know, it's kind of like climbing up a cliff and finding a ledge. It, it does kind of work because you get into certain tournaments based on that ranking. And if you make a big breakthrough, it does kind of pull you up quite a long way. Yeah, George. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's just the same old boring point about confidence, isn't it, really? I think if you start winning a few more matches, you know, you can ride on that kind of crest of a wave where you suddenly believe, oh, I belong at this level, I can go out and win and whatever. And Calvin is the man who loves to drone on about this. There's, there's very little between them that... <laughs> 200 to 20. Very true. Very true. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think it's obviously just been an up and up wave that he sort of believes he, he can't be beaten at the minute, which is which is superb. But, you know, he still looked absolutely delighted after the semi-final as well. I, I do still think there's a bit of an air of 
holy cow, how the hell have I got here? Like when you're beating the world number one um, in yeah. Belgrade. I mean, he did, he did like, you know, he said it took 150% to beat him, which, you know, isn't probably actually physically possible, but it's, mm. it's kind of, you know, it's quite nice actually seeing, seeing this story unfold yeah but i should also we should give him some credit he's not just like you know fluking his way through this and he said it himself he said you know i've worked blooming hard to get here and, mm. and with all the injuries and the rest of it and you know fair enough it is it is hard work and you know he's he's been away from home a long time you know he was born in in uh in south ossetia i think in southern russia and, and he grew up in israel and spent a lot of time there i think his father's father's family potentially um Jewish and you know he, he's been around a lot and then he trained in Barcelona for a while he trained in Belarus I know there was an offer in his career from Gunther Breswick I think came out this um this this not Gunther Breswick you know who I'm talking about um it came out this week uh, that he had an offer from Gunther to train but didn't like the financial deal so uh, and actually that brings me neatly on to Dominic Team, uh who we mentioned a little bit earlier and we haven't seen an awful lot of uh plainly because he hasn't he hasn't played in about five weeks. He hasn't played since he lost to Lloyd Harris. Remember when he was the flavour of the night? <laughs> uh, it was 16th of March. was his last, was Dominic Team's last appearance in Dubai. He's had a really tough year, really. And I think we've all said it and, and said a couple of times how how difficult it's looked like he, he has found tennis this year. And he's spoken quite a lot about this kind of drop he had after the, winning the US Open and finding this this real emptiness in having achieved it. I mean, he did a great interview with Des Standard, the Austrian paper, um, who are not always super reliable, uh, but they've done a good interview uh, this week, Christian Hackle. Uh, and he, he said that he's now got a knee problem that he's kind of coping with. He's previously had this chronic foot problem that he's had pretty much all his life uh, that we thought was the curry injury. But he now says he's got this, this left knee thing that he previously had in his right knee. Uh, where he's basically playing through a bit of pain and, and he's been trying to avoid playing too much because of that. Um, so he's on his way back. He, he's back in training and, and seems to be fully fit. And I think he's hoping to play Madrid this week, George. Am I right in saying that? Yeah. Yeah, he's one of the, the hopers, along with Murray, to play Madrid. <laughs> it's, it's team, the team is registered, presumably, and has a seeded place. Yes. Hmm. He's not relying on a wild card, as Mr. Murray is. No. Sir Andy, I'm afraid. Uh, I should have called him. Um, do, Calvin, that, that kind of you know emptiness, I know we've talked about it a lot, but and we've talked about form a lot today. With Dominic Team to be pretty much not having played tennis for the best part of a month, okay, competitive tennis, and then have another month to the French Open, I mean, would it concern you? He's someone who we always used to know is playing a hell of a lot of tennis. Yeah, it's never been one really for form, though, has he? He's always had these tournaments where he bombs out first round and that kind of thing. So, I mean, I guess in the clay, he's normally a lot better. But in the in other tournaments, he can be all over the shop and then suddenly appear in the semis in a final and that type of thing. So I wouldn't be too necessarily worried about that. I'd be more worried about the the bigger the bigger picture of things where he just doesn't seem to be enjoying playing. And he said that as much. Um, and if he's still got this foot injury, which for somebody who relies so hugely on his movement, that'd be a concern as well. Yeah. I, I was going to say that, make that exact point. I think what makes team so particularly brilliant is that really superb movement where he springs, 
in that one step coming back across the court. And I, I do worry a little bit if his if his knee's not quite right or that confidence isn't quite there. That that could have a serious impact on what is such an important part of his game. Um, you know, obviously movement's important for every player, but it's the explosive manner of that movement that is so beneficial to him. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see where he, he gets to. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of with Captain. I certainly wouldn't be drawing any super negative conclusions just yet. We've still got a bit of time. Of course, French Open's gone back a week, hasn't it? So there is a little bit more time than there normally would be at this stage. So I, I, I still would be expecting team and Rafa to be the, the men to be. And of course, it's you know it's worth remembering that you know, now team has got over the line at a grand slam that, that will give him a bit of extra belief at the French. If that final does come up, um, particularly seeing Rafa not necessarily as hot as he, as he can be. I think one of the things that's interesting now about this time of year compared to normal is that how maybe aside from city pass, just how little most of the players have played. Like Nadal missed the whole sort of he, he didn't play Miami, did he? That kind of thing. Um, yeah. And then he he bombed out early in uh, Monaco, um, mm. and then you know Sitsipas has played a lot, but Djokovic has barely played since the since the Aussie. Um, Zverev just keeps losing early all the time. <laughs> Team hasn't played. Me- Federer's barely played. Yeah. Murray hasn't played. Me- Medvedev got COVID at the start of the clay yeah. season as well, didn't yeah, he? So- you know, kind of. So it's who handles that, you know. There's two ways of looking at that. No, no one has really too much tennis in the locker. But on the the plus side of it, no one has too much tennis in the locker. So um, <laughs> it'd be who who handles it the best. It never seems to affect Rafa when he just wins every tournament. So maybe he, you could argue that he might need it a bit more. But um, mm. yeah, just just an observation, really. Nothing. Um, well, fortunately, we're going to get loads of tennis over the next three weeks because we've obviously got this, you know, the traditional clay court swing now with, with Madrid, uh, which we have not got Roger Federer at, and we'll come on to that in a little bit later. Um, we've also got the Rome Masters after that, and then obviously I think two weeks off and then the French Open, which is so it would usually be one week off, wouldn't it? But they've not moved Rome with the French Open. They've just left it as two weeks off. So that might that might create some interesting... You know, problems for players as well. Some players really like to play the week before the week before. I can't imagine many of them will relish playing in Rome. And then, you know, if you go out halfway through the week in Rome, you're potentially not going to play a competitive match of tennis for two and a half weeks before a Grand Slam. I don't many mention, don't fancy that many of them will relish that. And I, I don't think there'll be many tournaments of interest. Uh, the one tournament of interest is, of course, the one in Geneva. Uh, which does take place immediately after Rome. That's the one that we believe Roger Federer is going to play, or at least he's registered to play it at the moment. That means very little for Roger Federer these days because his body is what it is, and I think he keeps moving. George, do you, do you think pulling out of Madrid was the kind of thing he'd always planned to do and he was just registered just in case? Um, <clears throat> I, I, I do actually think the French Open moving will have impacted quite a lot on that decision. Um, right. I was actually slightly surprised when he went to play Madrid last year rather than Rome, um, or, la- or last French Open, not this, not last year, the year before, excuse me, in the last, <laughs> the, the, last normal clay court In season. the before, before, in the before time. In the before, before, um, which is a long time ago now. But the, the reason I say that is that the conditions in Madrid are so different <clears throat> to the French Open. Um, you know, you've got a big altitude there. 
it, it's a good tournament for him in terms of having a good chance to win because his serve goes through it really well. Um, but it's not necessarily great preparation for the French Open as your only clay tournament. Um, so when he signed up to that a couple of years ago, I was a li- little bit surprised. Um, I would have thought Rome this year would be the one he would have gone to play. Obviously, being in Switzerland is a big swinger as well in terms of why he'd want to go there. But Rome, I believe the conditions are relatively similar. Um, but yeah, look, uh, there's a gap, isn't there, again? So it's not like he's playing back-to-back week so it's kind of in the ideal spot for him having that week before the Grand Slam totally off getting some good match play on home soil probably not an event Rafa's going to turn up to so he could win the title who knows um, <laughs> it's a kind of a bit of a win-win I suppose for him unless unless Bashash really turns up <laughs> yeah. very possible um, you mentioned Andy Murray there. Uh, he's been talkative this week. He is still hoping, holding out, doing his classic last-minute muzzer act with Madrid. So we, we may yet see him in action this week. My, my instinct is that we won't, but uh, you know that's based on nothing other than, than gut feel. I mean, he's, he's good mates with Lopez, though, so he can get a wild card if he needs it, I'm sure. As <laughs> last minute as it comes. He's sort of directing <laughs> Uh, we all know what's going to happen there. Uh, you you mentioned in notes, George, that you were sort of slightly surprised that Federer's playing clay. I'm really surprised Murray's playing clay. I don't know about you, Calvin, but it, it surprised me that he's bothering to, to persist with it. Um, I think there's probably an element that he just wants to play and he's a bit bored and he doesn't know how... We don't know how long... This is the strange thing with Murray, you know. We don't know how long he plans on playing. Like... It yeah. might be that it might be that he might be planning on playing another two to three years, and mm. he's he's managing it that way. Or it might be that he's thinking, you know, he could easily. Be, I'd say there's as much chance that he that he he's planning on playing another two three years as there is that he plans on Wimbledon this year being his last ever tournament. Like, yeah. So I'd, it's difficult to sort of tell and, and know, and it's difficult to say whether we're surprised that he's playing the clay based on on that that we don't know what his what his long-term plans are or whether he's even got long-term plans. yeah i mean from the conversations we've had with him and, and you do have to bear in mind that if this man changes his mind on a weekly basis like it's impossible to know what he's going to do so yeah. you've always got to take it with a pinch of salt but you know it, there has generally been a bit of a longevity plan to it um that we mentioned uh, when he had to pull out of Miami, that was the first time there was a bit more of a concession that his body That's what, just yeah, might that... not be up to it. Um, yeah. So I, I would say the plan is still there. I mean, I, I was a little bit, I still wasn't sure if he'd necessarily, particularly, I think I'm right in saying he's not getting a wild card for the main draw of the French Open, or at least those were the rumours from France. Um, so that that was a little bit, I wasn't so sure he'd be bothered about going through qualifying there, particularly with the kind of reduced post-clay court, pre-grass court season. Um, and it, it wasn't so much about his long-term plans, but the idea that he's been very clear he thinks he can win Wimbledon again. I, I wasn't sure if he'd almost just maybe even play Madrid and Rome and then skip the French. You know, we've seen Roger do that a couple of times back in the day when just really wants that proper build-up but still gets some matches on clay. I wasn't 100% sure if he might might do that. Um, but we'll see. I mean, I, I've 
for what it's worth, I've tried to clarify anything on his schedule over the last couple of weeks and been fobbed off by his management saying they have no idea what he's doing the next day. So I'm as clueless as everyone else at the minute. I mean, don't we don't we understand from, from people we all know who have worked with Andy that that is not, that you know, that is how he operates. He, he will book flights the next day because he can and because he can be indecisive and, and leaves it to the last minute. It's not necessarily anything vindictive. It's just a an indecision and, and maybe a, a lack of need. You know, when you are the former world number one and a Grand Slam winner, people give you the time to make that decision because they want you to come. And if you then don't have the urgency to make that decision, you might as well put it off for as long as possible. We saw an interview from ATP president and CEO uh, Andrea Gadenzi uh, in the Times of Stu Fraser, which is well worth a read if you haven't already done so. Um, lots to unpack in it, but what it was nosed on, presumably trying to sell it to a UK crowd, is talking about that he wants a Masters 1000 event on grass and, and presumably in the UK. Now, George, that, that poses as many problems as it solves, I would suspect, because Queen's isn't really in shape to hold a Masters event, is it? No, it's not. There's, um, there's certain restrictions for a Masters event and what it, what it needs um, capacity-wise is actually the main the main thing. So you need As in crowd, three, crowd capacity, not court, crowd court capacity, capacity. Yeah. So th- you need three stadiums um, of certain sizes. I think it's about ten k, six k, and two k. Um, So I think Queen's is currently about 9,300 on centre and less than 1,000 on court one. Um, There's also draw size. So Queen's is, I think, 32 draw. Um, Mm -hmm. And Masters minimum, I believe, is 56. Um, Okay. So you've got a few different problems that are going to come with this. Um, So the... (sighs) In, in terms of that, it, it is possible that they'll get kind of leeway to, you know, change it on those points. Um, and the ATP are like, oh, don't worry about not having the full capacity or whatever, whatever or, you know, not meeting mm. the stadium requirements or having a smaller draw. Um, the, the problem is you'll then get a lot of backlash from the other Masters tournaments who obviously have been have meeting these requirements. Exactly. Um, um, so, so let's just say um, that Queens is a no-go, but Gardenzi desperate to hold this Masters event on grass. Is, is there anywhere else in the, anywhere else in the UK you could stick a temporary? No, there isn't, is there? There's not, and it, it's it's right. So it's possible you could, in theory, get a site. That, uh, uh, you know, assuming Wimbledon obviously aren't going to be lending their grass courts, which obviously they're not <laughs> going to be. Um, there's no other site that is really masters ready it's possible to get a site but because of the nature of the courts you couldn't have that ready for you know years it wouldn't be it wouldn't yeah. be a case of like putting down a hard court and can you drop in a, can you drop in a grass court you know like they do with cricket pitches in australia where you you pretty much grow it somewhere else and then helicopter it in i don't i, I don't I, think so i don't think so i've, I've been told no basically the people i've spoken to today so you know it, it's unlikely the the other issue that comes with this is where the other 500 goes is it is not quite as simple as you know okay queens can be the masters halla can be 500 
Haller would then have to go back a week to just after the French Open. So that that kills that tournament, you know, mm. really, in terms of the size it is. So, yeah. so neither one of them are going to want to do that. Obviously, you can't go a week closer to the slam either before Wimbledon because that kills it for the same reason. Um, and actually, in terms of kind of jobs that this provides, kind of having two concurrent 500s is almost better. Um, you know, you have kind of 32-player draws and then whatever, 20 qualifying into that at two separate tournaments rather than then narrowing it down into a 56 and 28 qualifying or whatever. You're then creating jobs, tour-level jobs, in two different good-sized sites. Um, yeah. So then the other solution you could consider would be adding another week into the calendar and making it four weeks, but I'm you know, reliably told there's absolutely no chance of that happening. <laughs> so I, I, I think there's actually a lot of big problems with this, and I'm not... Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it won't happen, but I'm not convinced it's a great idea, actually. Um, even I though I would gonna... like a Masters on grass, I just don't think it actually makes sense given what there is already and how you would have to move it, if that makes sense. I, I was just going to say the same. Like, I don't see what... We, we have this debate every five years or so, and being a, relative to where the gra- where grass court tennis is in the, in the whole calendar... It barely gets played. I don't see why you'd need to add another tournament in there. It's almost like the little build-up and Wimbledon fill the gap that grass court tennis needs to be filled. I mean, for me, they just do away with it. It's a ridiculous surface anyway. But um, <laughs> but um, I, I don't I don't see how you can have a t- I don't see how you can play tennis on a tournament that is at its worst on the most important match. Um, so I, I don't like it. But going to your question about can you drop in a grass court, um, James? It's it's kind of the problem with grass courts is, and I know this from speaking to a lot of people from clubs who own, who, who have grass courts, that they're only really playable. Cause for anyone who knows, and I guess most of our listeners will have played on grass courts, they tend to be quite rubbish. But the ones at Wimbledon and Queens are regarded as the best hard courts in the world, the ones at Queens. Um, but that's because they have a team of groundsmen working on them all year round. So they're still yeah. working on them all year round. So you'd have to have somebody who can specifically just work on these grass courts all the time. It's not like a, a, a hard court where you don't have to do anything on them or a clay court where you basically you just leave them in the winter and and deal with them when it comes round. You need someone working all year round on a surface that you're probably going to play on for about three or four weeks. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the other mild issue from... British tennis organizers' perspective was they. I think it would then require them to move Eastbourne up to thousand as well on the women's side. From a kind, of, that's that's what they were kind of saying. It would, it would almost be a, a double jeopardy kind of thing um, because obviously they're running their events kind of similar level now. Um, so I, I'm not sure there's actually great appetite to do it here. Of course, don't get Georgia. me wrong. George, on the on the way you could hold it, Haller's Stadium looks quite big, though. Is it? Haller's yeah. A lot so, bigger than so that. yes. So this is the thing. So Haller does have the venue to do it. Um, it I, I think in Stuart's interview, it does say they're looking at UK option, um, which is right. why it was particularly prompted as that. But Queens, that's what you would obviously. say. That's what you would say to a UK yeah, true. when you're trying to flip but, it up. But, but Queens, I mean, Queens, it would be a disaster if that had to move. I mean, if you 
you know, put it right back next to the French Open. That that would be an absolute shocker for Queens. And players well, like... Because then, then well. Rafa definitely wouldn't play. Yeah. <laughs> Instead no, but, of just you know, saying he's going to play and pulling out. But in the long term, I mean, you'd be losing anyone who's in the second week of the French Open wouldn't be playing yeah. that, particularly if there's a, then a tournament the week after that gives you twice as many points. I mean, there's just no way you'd, yeah. you'd turn just, up Just for to the that record, event. George, because I don't want you to get bogged down in scheduling. I know you get very excited about this sort of thing. But the, the answer here, if, if you, unlike Calvin, believe that the grass court season is worth having, and if you, unlike George, <laughs> don't love squeezing things in... I, I love that, squeezing things in. You, you, just, you just move Wimbledon a week later. Like, that's the obvious thing to do. It's on a nightmare weekend as it is because the final's usually the same day as the British Grand Prix and some sort of World Cup final or European Championship final. So, uh, but, but they refuse to move it because, well, this is when we've always done it and we're bloody Wimbledon. The obvious thing to do would be to move Wimbledon a week later. You're into the school holidays better that way anyway as well, which, you know, in terms of getting kids in to watch tennis, you're better off doing it during school holidays. But who who wants kids watching tennis? Certainly not the All England. So the obvious thing to do is move Wimbledon, but that will never happen. The other obvious thing to do is move the French Open, but that's not going to happen either, unless it's COVID. But just ignore the fact that I'm wrong. It's just insane. It's absolutely insane. It, it, it's a it's a season that deliberately cuts its nose off to spite its face. It drives me nuts. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I, I don't... Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I just mean in terms of the the practicalities they've got is that Wimbledon will never move. I mean, <laughs> that that's just the reality. So they've got this three-week season, and I don't think putting a Masters in a three-week season makes sense to me, given the kind of logistical issues that come with it. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it, it, he, he clearly is set on it, and I know he is from what I've been told, is seriously looking at this. This isn't just something he's chucked into an interview. You know, this is a serious thing they want to put in. Um, but it's impossible. Well, but, I don't... I mean, like, he can be as serious about it as he wants, but it's, it's almost I, impossible. I, well, I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but I would say that it's probably going to be very bad news for Queens if, if it does go ahead. Which, okay. So nice of him to drop that in a UK interview. <laughs> I, I can't say... I... And knowing where Queen sits on on the big picture, although it's a small tournament, they have quite a lot of political leverage, especially with Wimbledon and the LTA and that kind of thing. I can't see them yeah. doing anything to to upset Queens. It's too there's big. A, there's a it, it wins that it wins like ATP 500 tournament of the year all the time. I mean, the players love it as well. It's got um, you know, there's a from the players' perspective. The other thing, the other thing that was lobbied to me earlier as a, a key point here is that. Actually, I'm not sure the players would be that keen. They get quite big appearance fees from Queens and Haller that they wouldn't get from a Masters. Um, so, actually, I'm not sure. There, I know Federer has kind of roughly said in the past he would have liked there to be another Masters 1000 event on grass um, to kind of have it, you know, have another title. He could go and walk and win, I suppose, and get his Masters titles up. But yeah, I, I don't really believe there would is a massive call in the player body for this. Okay, we'll leave it there without getting too stuck into another scheduling debate. Uh, because we've <laughs> just got time to do dream doubles, and it's going to have to be snappy dream doubles uh, with further. This is nightmare doubles, isn't it? it is, yeah. Well, yeah, I suppose nightmare doubles is more appropriate. Your nightmare drinking doubles. Uh, I think I started with Calvin last week. So, George, why don't, why don't you go first? You've started with me every single week, actually. 
And I'm always the person who's thought about it least. But I, I, I did, again, have a brief think earlier. And I, I'm going to go for um, two Brits, actually. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, this is going to get bitchy. Uh, I'm going to go for Kyle Edmund, who just <laughs> hates us <laughs> and has nothing interesting to say. Um, so, you know, I, I just, he's, he's my obvious it? choice. He just, he, he just wouldn't want to be there with me. So, I, you know, that's fine. Not me personally, <laughs> but just like journalists will stop. So I don't okay. want to be there with him either. Yeah. Um, and I, I was going to go for Conter as the other one purely based on a bit of an anecdote about her turning up for a pub lunch with everyone having a, a glass of water and then leaving. So okay. um, I, I don't think she'd be that fun. <laughs> That's not really in the spirit of the, uh, spirit of the occasion, George, to actually take it seriously and like analyse people's drinking game. But that's fine. You, you want to be vigilant about it. That's, that's perfectly reasonable. Well, Calvin, since you always go first, you've now got the luxury of going second. Uh, who's never gone first so I've gone for um, I normally get, I've, I've had quite a habit of doing this and going like a bit retro and going further back so I'm not going to yeah. do that I'm going to go more modern on this time um, so I'm going and I, I've met I feel a bit bad doing this because I had I had this opinion about this player uh, for, for a while and since then I've actually met him because a player I coached practiced with him a couple of years ago at Wimbledon and he's actually a really really sound guy but still probably <laughs> not the kind of guy that you'd want to go out drinking with because he's just so boring is Milos Raonic. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's just kind of like the Terminator um, okay. and, and, and just no emotion. And the second yeah. guy is a very recent one. This just after watching him last week is quarantine Boutet because there's no way <laughs> that he wouldn't start a fight and you somehow <laughs> manage to be dragged in. Look at him last week. His mates were there watching. His mates weren't having anything to do with the match and then Evo wanted to start a fight with them. In case you missed it, it's well worth finding online somewhere. Dan it, just remind, it, reminded me, it, it reminded me of a lad who, when I was playing tennis, and I won't say his name because I doubt he's listening, but he might be, but there was a lad who, who kind of was a bit like Quarantine Moutet, and we went out for a night out in Bradford, a few of us who were playing, and this lad got cracked by three different people. On <laughs> in, in one night. <laughs> oh, my punched, God. He, he got punched three times for three different things by three different people. In, all in the space, say it was in the space of a night. It was all in about 90 minutes. And Quarantine wow. Motet it's, reminds me of that. He's the George Belshaw of the West Yorkshire drinking scene in the 1990s. <laughs> a man who, if there's a punch to be thrown, it's in his direction. Yeah, so, uh, so that's mine. One guy's just boring and the other one would just... <laughs> you're stuck on a night out with one guy boring and one guy who's just... Just because of the way he is, would start a fight. Flypaper for shitheads, yeah. Yeah. Nini yeah. could go into that category as well, couldn't he? I but, but yeah. I thought could start that, a fight with a wall. Yeah, but the thing I thought, I thought about having Fognini, but like a couple of things I thought, like the, 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 the girls love him, so he'd probably get a bit of attention around the table that way. And yeah. I bet he's a bit of a laugh, Fognini. Yeah. Whereas Matet just seems like a bit of a twat. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> I'd get behind that. Um, my. My my pairing features a bit of a twat um, in Alexander Zverev. Uh, Terrible gear, terrible bloke. And I'm guessing (laughs) that he just sits in the corner and like nails neat vodkas every 10 minutes and then just takes his shirt off. And he's just (laughs) the biggest knob in the nightclub. Yeah, Um, I want to change to him as well. Yeah, that's a a great shout. I love love how you've got the right answer. 
I love how you've right clobber, clobber uh, as well. My, he my other one dress is like a fool. <laughs> my other one is is Partwell. I mean, I think a lot of people think he's also a bit of a bad bloke, but it's also based on his tennis. Um, if John Isner drinks like he plays tennis, he drinks lager and only lager all night, even at five a.m., eighteen hours <laughs> into a session when all you want is like a palate-cleansing gin and tonic, and he won't let you drink anything else either. He's like, I'm drinking lager, you're drinking lager, we're drinking lager all night. And it's Bud Light, and it's horrible. That, I just, honestly, it's like, you're stuck in the Isna Mahu of nights out, because it's 7am, you're in a piano bar drinking warm lager. I can't Andy really argue. Trump. Andy votes for Trump. <laughs> Andy votes Trump. Yeah, this was also, I thought of that, and then it's kind of backed up by the fact there's quite a lot of people who also don't like John Isner. Uh, so I would implore you to vote for my double dream doubles, nightmare dream doubles, uh, drinking pair of Zverev and Isner, uh, because I didn't think I'd be vindictive about it, George. Yeah, unlike you. <laughs> I, I need to give more thought to these things rather than just what pops into my head, because... Um, oh, I see. Right, yeah, George Belgium you know, gives I need to plan. Need to yeah, plan. I, I'm, just, I'm just thinking of, a, of an alternate scenario there where like we're, we're all out in the bar at this, uh, with, with these pairs in the same bar, <laughs> and I can't think of any chance at all that Quarantine Motet and Alexander Zverev don't start scrapping. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's nailed on. Like, yeah, no, no question about that. Absolutely. Um, that's pretty much all we've got time for this week. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, um, Tony Eason, Valencia Hurt. I know Courtney Gardner was here earlier. Thanks very much for joining us live um, on Locker Room. You can do two every 8 p.m. UK time, uh, which is BST at the moment, if that confuses on, you. On a Monday. Not every on a Monday. I'm not, actually, <laughs> we're not here every day. And, and, probably, and probably not next week because I've got a prior engagement at 8 p.m. on Monday. But every other Monday at 8 p.m. UK time, do join us on Locker Room. If you're listening back to the podcast, please leave us a review and a rating. Uh, and make sure you follow us on Twitter at Love Tennis Pod. Other than that, all that remains to say is goodbye, stay safe, and good night. Sports Social Podcast Network.